Take your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I read this week about a church, uh, this has been a few years ago, in Dallas, Texas, that became divided. And a rift occurred to the point that there were two opposing sides in the church. So much of a rift occurred that they sued one another. Despite the fact that, you know, there's actually a verse about that in 1 Corinthians, not to do that. But they sued one another and they took it to court. And when they got to court, the judge at the court said, I don't think this is the proper place for that. that that's kind of embarrassing, right? And so he sent them back to their denominational courts, where the denomination heard it. In the midst of that, one group was awarded the church and the building and all the things that they were in dispute over, and the other church did what we assumed they would do in this kind of context in the south, like Dallas, Texas, is they left and moved two streets over and started another church. It's church multiplication, the American way, right? So here's the thing about that. They, a Dallas newspaper, as you can imagine, loved this story. Court, uh, court proceedings and church court proceedings and new church starting out of the dispute. And so they went to try to find out what caused the initial disagreement. And they traced it to its source. It started at a church potluck dinner. When an elder of the church was sitting next to a child and he felt like he got a smaller slice of ham than the child seated next to him and he was very upset about that. At least it was over something important, right? Now, church disputes are not new. Uh, I, I saw there was a book written. Um, I don't have this book personally. Um, I don't think I've been a part of anything that would be described by the title. There's a book by Leslie Flynn named Great Church Fights. And it tells a story about a church that is described in a Welsh newspaper. They were looking for a new pastor. And instead of a singular search committee, somehow they had formed two search committees that were opposed to one another. And so on one particular Sunday, one of the search committees had discovered that the other one had someone coming to preach in view of a call, as we would call it. And so they got their own preacher to come. And at the beginning of the service, two different people got up and started calling for hymns. And literally the church was divided in two. And one side was singing one set of hymns. And the other side was singing another set of hymns. And then when it came time to preach, both men stood up and began to yell their sermon. I think there's also some things about that over in 1 Corinthians, right? The Sunday morning service turned into bedlam, and through it all, the two preachers continued to out-shout each other with their sermons. Eventually, somebody that realized this is ridiculous called a policeman. They came in and began to shout for the congregation to be quiet, and they advised the 40 people in the church to go home. So they did, and two people from opposite sides decided we, this is enough. And so they called a meeting that night to do a let's be friends meeting, and it ended in an argument. Local paper had the article headline as Hallelujah, Two Jacks in One Pulpit. Now, 
You hear those stories, you're like, That's, those are crazy stories, right? And the sad thing is, they're stories that actually happened. And they illustrate what is all too often true, that many of the gravest dangers that a church will face are from within and not from without. It's always been this way. Karl Barth once remarked that there might not be any letters in the New Testament except for disagreements in the church. And almost all of Paul's letters are written to churches that are in disarray or disagreement. If you want to read about an unhealthy church, read the letters to the Corinthians. Maybe that's your personal experience. Maybe you grew up in a church or have been a part of a church or maybe you've been in a church um, where something has happened, where a disagreement or a slight or, or some kind of disruption or tearing apart of the church has happened. And when you tell stories of it and about how silly it can be about certain things, sometimes when there's somebody else's church stories and about the color of the carpet or the painting of the walls or whatever it is that might divide a church that seems to be minuscule in the grand scheme of things, when it happens to you, it is not small in any way. When you're part of a church that experiences a split or a divide or real hurt, maybe caused you to leave a church. When you experience that, it's very difficult and hard and real. Over the last few weeks, we've been in a series of messages called Imprint, and we're talking about the imprint we want to leave on the society and the world around us. And we've talked about the things that we have to get right. That if we get everything else right and we miss all these core things, then we have failed. And if we mess up everything else, but we get these core things right, we have succeeded. This is the essence of who we are. And we talked in the first week about the essence of who we are is that we are here to glorify God. That is what we are about. The second one, we talked about the fact that we have to believe in and stand on and live under the authority of God's Word because that is our guide. That is what instructs us in who we are. We talked about the third week about the fact that we are in the business that our task, our God-given role is to make, to be a part of developing passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And then last week we talked about that if we don't pass on our faith to the next generation, then we have failed. Well, today we're going to talk about one more and then next week one more and we're done with the series. Today we're going to talk about that if we don't get true gospel community right, then we fail. And this isn't being talked about, at least from my perspective, in a vacuum of nothing going on in the world around us. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there is what has been described not by church people, but by secular people as a loneliness epidemic happening amongst us. In fact, I did just a quick search for news articles or things that are about the loneliness epidemic. And I found multiple things over the last year where major publications are talking about it. For instance, this is one headline that I saw. This is from Inc., the magazine. American adults are struggling to make friends, meet 11 apps trying to help. 
I don't know that apps are the solution, but that's what it is. And then just this little thing that's in gray, you may not be able to see, or you probably see it up there. The Surgeon General has warned of loneliness epidemic, and entrepreneurs are trying to help. Here's another headline that I saw. Why This is PBS News Weekend from January 8, 2023. That's like a month ago. Why Americans are lonelier and its effect on our health. And it's a new segment on the loneliness epidemic. Or this headline that I saw. As the shadow of the pandemic looms over cities, urban loneliness is rising. Or this headline. The loneliness epidemic persists, a post-pandemic look at the state of loneliness among U.S. adults. Or this headline from the Harvard School. Loneliness in America, how the pandemic has deepened an epidemic of loneliness and what we can do about it. Or how loneliness is damaging our health from the New York Times. Or researchers call for a national public health effort to prevent loneliness. Everywhere you look, people are recognizing that we have a loneliness epidemic. And here's the thing. As the church, we have the solution. We were made for community. That's how God intended for us to live. And the place that God intended for us to live that out best is in the center of a true gospel community, in the center of a church. And so today I want to talk about what is that? What does that look like? And we're going to look at four verses that is one sentence from the Philippians letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And one of the overarching themes of this letter, if you look at a lot of people, they talk about Philippians, it's a book on joy. And it is. Paul talks about joy a lot. But one of the overarching themes of the letter also is that in order to sustain yourself and to do what God has called us to do, in order to thrive in the hostile community in which you find yourself externally, you have to be unified together for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ to succeed. That without unity and working together and serving one another, there is no way that we are going to be able to stand up against the attack that is coming from the outside. In fact, chapter 2, verse 1 is actually following a discussion that he's given over the last few verses where he is telling them that Christ is better than anything and that we are, he tells us in verse 27, if it's not on the screen, but you can see it if you've got your Bibles open there, chapter 1, verse 27, he says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he says, whether I come or where I'm not, whether I'm able to do that or not, you'll be together in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Not frightened by your opponents because you're unified and together and moving forward. In order to face the opponents on the outside, Paul tells the Philippians that they must be united, not only against their common foes, but also united in heart and mind and in regard for one another. And verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 form a single sentence that is a passionate appeal for unity and care inside the church. Here's what it says, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. 
Verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. And over the four verses that are listed here, the one sentence that Paul writes, he gives us a glimpse into what true gospel community is. The first thing in that is a statement that most of us would probably go, yeah, that's obvious. True gospel community is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul begins with a deliberately emotional appeal to them to say, don't forget where you've come from and what Jesus has done for you. And he sets this up in conditional sentences. If there, if there, if there is, if there is. And what his point is not, hey, if by chance, or sometimes when we say if, if I get to be there tomorrow means that there's a possibility. This is better understood more as since there is, because there is. And he lists a fourfold understanding of what we have in Christ that bears on how we build out the community in which we live. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection or mercy. And he's saying to them, don't forget from where Christ pulled you. Don't forget the community in which he has given you. And don't forget what it means to live that out. He starts by saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ, that was to summon for them the experience of salvation when the Holy Spirit changed their lives and comforted them and strengthened them in that moment. This is a callback to their own spiritual biography, to the moment when they accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if you're here today and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is a Reminder to us to consistently remember how Christ saved us. And maybe it wasn't that you came out of a terrible background of a lots of sin that you had to overcome and Christ miraculously saved you out of that. Maybe it is you grew up in a church and you heard the gospel from a young age. And even though we all didn't do any horrible sins from the world's perspective, we knew that we were sinners in need of salvation. And Christ miraculously saved a sinner like myself. I was nine years old. I've told y'all before. I've had the I have the most Baptist salvation story there is. Sitting in a pew at First Baptist Church of Dyersburg, Tennessee, nine years old. Preacher had finished preaching. I'm sitting there just as I am is being sung, and I said to the Lord, "Save me, Lord. I'm a sinner, and I need to be saved." And in that moment, as a nine-year-old in Dyersburg, Tennessee, God forever changed my life. He's writing to a church, and he says, if you have any encouragement in Christ, that's one of the most ridiculous statements you could say that that's not true, right? Of course we have encouragement in Christ. Of course we know that Christ has saved us from our sins. Of course we know that he has rescued us from a lifetime of loneliness and guilt and shame. And not only that, has established us in eternity with him. And that when he comes again, and I hope it is soon and very soon, we will spend eternity with him forever and ever and ever and ever Amen. 
Of course there's encouragement in Christ. He says, if you individually have encouragement in Christ. He says, is there any comfort from love? Referencing the experience of Christ's love. The fact that He loves us unconditionally. That He gave His life for us. That He loves us with a never-ending, never-stopping, always looking out for the best of us love. A love that will not let me go. A love that is deeper than anything we could imagine. That we cannot understand completely the height, nor the depth, nor the length, nor the width of the love of Jesus Christ. As much as we pray for it and ask for it, it is too high. It is too deep. It is too broad for us to fully comprehend. He says, if you have any encouragement of Christ, if you have any comfort from His love, If you have any, and the word here, participation, is actually the word fellowship. If you have any fellowship with the Spirit, partnership, togetherness. Paul celebrated this in verse 5 when he talks about the fellowship we have in the gospel, the partnership. And he's saying, and this is a miraculous thing to even think about. If Christ has saved you and you have been impacted by his love and you know that you have now become partners, joint heirs with Christ and that his spirit is working in and through you on his behalf, you have become partners with the very spirit of God. He says, if you have encouragement, if you have love, if you have the fellowship of Christ, if you have any affection and mercy. What he's appealing to there is the divine compassion and mercy that came from Christ itself that now works through us to others. And so he says basically in this fourfold if statement, if Christ has saved you and you've experienced the love of Christ and you are fellowshipping and partnering with the Spirit to bring mercy and love to the people of this world and to the community in which you live. If that is what is there. Paul is obviously, emotionally trying to reach them at a level more than just their head. He's taking them back to the moment of grace when Christ saved them, the work of Christ in their own souls, the work of Christ in the souls of their brothers and sisters. He experiences this comfort and encouragement in Christ. They are to remember it and what Christ has done for them. And then through that, he says, hopefully that gives you a heart for other people and to realize that Christ came not only to save you, although that was part of it, but to, through you, his compassion and mercy and grace can be demonstrated to those people around you. He says, if that's you at all. And so here's what I want to say to you. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Christ has saved you. You have given your life to Christ. If you can remember that moment when Christ's love changed you forever, if you can understand the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God as best you can if you are a partner being indwelled by the Holy Spirit and if there is anything in you that has the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ living through you then the call for the rest of this sermon is for you. Paul says, if that's the case. Verse 2. 
he tells them that the church would then unify around the gospel. Verse 2. Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, unified in spirit, and intent on one purpose. Here's one thing I want you to notice that's just kind of cool in the text here. There were four if statements and there are four applications of the if statements. If this is true of you, if you've been saved, if the Spirit lives within you, if you've experienced the love of Christ, if you have affection and mercy, then make my joy complete in these four ways. Think the same way as your brothers and sisters. Have the same love as your brothers and sisters. Unified in spirit with your brothers and sisters. Intent on one purpose with your brothers and sisters. See, a lot of times we read these kind of passages, and we've talked about this before, and we take very individual applications to them. But chapter 2, verse 2 is a letter to a church, and it's asking the church to make his joy complete. It's asking the church to think the same way. It's asking the church to have the same love. It's asking the church to unify in spirit. It's asking the church to be intent on one purpose. This is, as we have said before, where I wish we had a southern version, a translation of the Bible. Because this is not you singular. This is, I want y'all to do this. Y'all make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. And let me just tell you, from what we know from the rest of the book of Philippians, this was an issue in their church. Unity with one another was an issue in their church. They struggled with making sure that they were on the right path. They were making sure they were working alongside each other, helping one another in the midst of that. And he says to them, if you want to make my joy complete, we know that Paul is writing this letter in prison for a capital uh, a charge that is against him, for sedition if you will he is in prison he is there and he's writing and he's saying if you want to make me joyful if you want to see and experience it yourself then apply this way out of it it's unity around the gospel of jesus christ let me just say that there's a lot of discussion about there about how do, how, do, how do churches unify? There's even conversations in this church about we need more unity. How do we get more unity? And people start talking about ways to bring about more unity. How do we do this and how do we do that? What is the center? Can I tell you that unity in a church does not happen without individual commitments of its members to the gospel of Jesus Christ and an understanding that that is our calling to collectively come together for him. And so you can come up with all kinds of solutions and ideas and events and all of that. And if at the base of it is not an understanding of our need for Jesus Christ to bring and be the center of the unity that is here, it will not succeed. And the unity Paul is talking about here is not some kind of vacuous or empty togetherness. It is a oneness come together for a dynamic purpose. It is to join together for the glory of God, for the making of disciples among the nations, for the extending of his kingdom on this earth, to bring God's kingdom on earth just as it is in heaven. And anything that tries to bring unity around anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he is calling us to do is not gospel-centered, church-centered community.
I mean, Paul was so passionate about this that he cared little about himself. He only cared that the church was getting it right. He was in prison, as I said, on a capital charge, chained, guarded 24-7, afflicted by those who should be his friends, with execution at hand. He rested his joy in Christ and the gospel and insisted his joys would be complete or be uh, to the end if they lived out the unity in the gospel. Those four things, thinking the same way, means not that everybody is exactly the same. It means that we have the same idea about what's most important. Having the same love. That means that our love for one another is the same love that Christ had for us. That means we give each other the benefit of the doubt. That means we look for the best in other people. That means we forgive again and again and again and again and again and again. It means that we are lifting one another up. It means that we are not talking about each other behind each other's backs. We're not gossiping in prayer request chains. We're not having those discussions about what's wrong with him or what's wrong with them. That we are having a conversation about what love should look like in our midst and we are looking towards what Christ has called us to do. That means that we are serving one another, helping one another, living out the gospel of Jesus Christ in each other's lives. United together Together, it says there, in the Spirit, that God's Spirit is what brings us to that place and that we are intent on one purpose. What is that purpose? That we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that that statement is biblical in its essence. What I'm saying is that at, at the core of what we believe is that glorifying God and bringing people to be passionate devoted followers of Jesus Christ, that is our biblical mandate and purpose for a gospel-believing, gospel-living-out church of Jesus Christ. And then he gives us the practical applications where it gets hard. Because I think at this point, if I were to ask most people in this church, hey, does all that sound good? Gospel-believing, gospel unity, thinking the same thing, going the same direction for the purpose that God has called us to. Everybody would be like, amen, preacher. Well, not in this church, but a lot of churches, people would be like, amen, preacher, a lot, right? But what we found in this passage is that gospel humanity is based on the gospel, but it is also found through humble sacrifice. Paul was explicit about mutual care within the church. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. There are a couple of things that he mentions in there that are important for us. He says that humility or lowliness is essential. Rivalry and conceit have always been um, kind of part and parcel of what this world is about. In fact, in the history of when Jesus' time was, when Paul would have been writing this right after Jesus lived and was crucified and resurrected and went back to the Father. Not, not many years later, Paul is writing this, that in that language, if you look in other places, the word humility, the word lowliness is nowhere to be found almost in all other Greek writing. This is a Christian idea. This is something that is countercultural even then. In fact, when it is used in other writings, it is used in a derogatory sense. It is used in a negative way. It is talked of weakness. It is talked of shameful lowliness. 
Because in culture in general, conceit and pride has been more in vogue over the centuries. Civilizations have declared that you cannot make it in the world. You cannot make it unless you have great self-confidence. If you don't have pride in yourself. If it's almost like a cocky disposition. If that's not who you are, you can't make it. We celebrate people as culturally, the people that live that way. I, I saw this week about a guy named Oscar Wilde, who some of you may not know, but was celebrated for who he was and for pushing the limits and all of that. And when he was asked one time in another country, going through customs, if he had anything to declare, he said, only my genius. And that's the way the world kind of says, just be confident in yourself. Be almost take control. Be willing to do that. And there's some, uh, there's some words given to service and helpfulness, but the reality is if you want to make it where you need to get to in this world, you've got to step on people and you don't worry about what you say or how you say it or who you offend. You just speak your truth. And there may be some truth to that in the secular world. But it is an abomination in the church. The rule for the church is gospel-oriented, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Several years ago now, um, when I started doing some, some postgraduate work at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, on the first weekend... Part of our orientation was we got there, we started class right away. I was in a two-week intensive classes. But on the weekend, at noon on Saturday, the first weekend, they took a break and they gave us a tour of Louisville. We saw some of the spots. You're going to be spending a couple of weeks here, um, a couple of times a year over the next five years. And so we want you to get familiar with your surroundings and where you're staying. And so they took us on a, a tour. And one of the interesting places they took us was to a cemetery. And at the cemetery... They wanted to show us the graves of two of Southern's most famous professors. No, you're all thinking, man, this sounds like a rocking tour right here. The two men were guys named A.T. Robertson and John Brodus. John Brodus is one of the founding professors there. John Brodus was a president of the school at one time. A.T. Robertson was his son-in-law. They're both major scholars in the history of kind of um, Baptist thought. A.T. Robertson wrote what is considered by by many to be the standard for Greek text about the Greek language. uh, 1,200 pages on the Greek language. When we went to the cemetery, they said, we want to show you the graves of John Brodus and A.T. Robertson. And they showed us John Brodus, and it was evident. It was this huge, like, like, like obelisk with an um, engraved, like a carved picture of the man in the middle of it. It was ornate. It was huge. And we were like, that's, okay, awesome. That inscription about the glory to God and all of that. And they said, okay. And then I said, are we going to A.T. Robertson's next? One of my classmates did. And they said, oh, you're already here. And right next to John Brodus was a flat, one little stone that just had A.T. Robertson. And our guide said, first of all, John Brodus didn't make that on his own. His family did that for him. But we were there to begin Ph.D. studies. And he says some people pursue Ph.D. studies to get the big statue and some people do it to be a humble servant what's the reason that you're here in church work 
and being part of a church, what's your reason for being here? To get the statue or to be the servant? Obviously, I haven't forgotten that particular moment. It's been 16 years. A.T. Robertson once wrote, I will serve the Lord as best I can. And when I am done, if I could be buried in the shadow of someone like John Brodus, it would be awesome. Because I will have served my Lord and served at his pleasure as a professor of this school. We're called to bring unity through humble service. We've talked a lot over 15 plus years about that in Scripture the word all means all, right? There's no deep understanding of that. The word all, when I say it in Scripture, means all. In the same way, in verse 3, the word nothing means nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit or pride. But humility, consider all others, is the understanding, as more important than yourself. One writer, his first name is Marcus. He's from another country. I can't pronounce his last name. says this, Instead of pursuing their own prestige, that strangely addictive and debasing cocktail of vanity and public opinion, the Philippians are called humility to the lowliness of heart, which agrees to treat and think of others preferentially. The biblical view of humility is precisely not groveling nor sanctimonious and pathetic lack of self-esteem, rather a mark of moral strength and integrity. It involves an unadorned acknowledgement of one's own creaturely inadequacies and entrusting our fortunes to God rather than to our own abilities or our own resources. It's understanding that we cannot do it on our own. And churches that try to do it on their own or pull themselves up by their good business savvy and their political gain and their good things with people and not depending on the grace and the mercy and the power of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, we will fail if that's who we are. Not only is it humility, it is other-directed humility. Let each of you look not only to not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul's great concern here, a healthy church will survive an onslaught of hostile and fracturing community around them when we look not to our own benefit, our own safety, but we look to other people's interest and to other people as the priority for our service. Somebody writing about that church from Dallas that I mentioned at the very beginning said that in a church that is truly humbly serving others then every portion served at the church dinner is just right for the moment regardless of size God calls us through Paul in this letter to serve one another and to think of others before we think of ourselves You see, true gospel community is not about us at all. It's not about me at all. This church is not my church. This church is not your church. This church is not even our church. 
There's no part of the programs of this church that is my program or that is your program or that is our program. There's no part of what we do here at this church that is mine or yours or ours. This building is not my building. It is not your building. It is not our building. This is a church that is dedicated to Jesus Christ. And it's all His. And we're stewards of what He has given us, but not to make sure that what He's given us is just kept where it is. The reason He has given us these things is that we might steward them and risk them in order to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ and be developed into passion-voted followers of Jesus Christ, who pass that on to the next generation, and that that cycle continues again and again and again and again, whether it is here in this building, in this location, or it is somewhere else around the world. That is what we are called to do, and it is not for our sake or our glory or the glory of the name First Baptist Church of Goodlandsville. It is for the glory of Jesus Christ and the expansion of his kingdom. And everything we do has to be evaluated against that. And as a community, if that is our focus, if what we're saying is the one goal we have is that we have to go towards that, that's our goal, then suddenly all the things that we think matter in life don't matter as much because that's our goal. That's one of the reasons, uh, y'all know I love sports, and I watch a lot of sports, and one of the reasons I do that is because sports is one of the areas in our culture today where we see people from vastly different backgrounds, from different races, from different tribes and tongues, if you will, and they are coming together for a goal. Next weekend, there's a big game between two teams that I don't particularly like, either one of them. And what's interesting is you will have people that, if they were not on that team, would not like each other. And the truth is, outside of that team, they don't like each other sometimes. But when they get on that field, they have one purpose in mind. And if they don't, guess what? They're not there right now. And their goal is to win and to accomplish the goals set before them. And because of that, they set aside whatever differences or slightest. They encourage one another. They help one another. If somebody's got a problem that they can't see, they don't go, well, let them just hang out there on their own. They help them. They figure it out. They work together for one goal, one purpose, one place, and in order to do the one thing they accomplish. And they're trying to accomplish the gathering of one trophy that none of them can keep in their homes. And we can't get on board with the greatest mission that's ever been given in the history of the world. That's what brings church unity. Focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, humbly looking to serve one another without any pride or conceit and considering others better than ourselves. And then we don't have time to go in depth on what comes after this, But Paul emphasizes and says, and if you want to know what that looks like, just follow your leader. Follow the servant king. Because chapter 2, verse 5 through 11 is one of the greatest hymns that has ever been penned. Verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Again, we, we, we read this out of context. He's specifically talking about if you want a unified church, if you want a unified movement towards what God has called us to do, verse 5 says, then you adopt this attitude of Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man... 
He humbled himself. I become obedient to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. You say, well, how far is too far to be in humble? How much do I have to give up of myself? How much do I have to sacrifice? Well, Jesus literally gave his life. In the most humiliating way that has ever been created for people to give their lives. Verse 9. For this reason, God, because of that, because of what he did, because of all that was there, because he humbly served us, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And that's... Our goal is to see the name of Jesus exalted and for all people to bow the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So what do we do with all of that? The simplest and most profound thing we can do is pray. We have a group of people that are meeting together to pray before services now. Uh, You're more than welcome to join them. They meet on Sunday mornings. Daniel Shaw kind of leads that group. And they pray over this service. They pray over the church. They pray over other needs. And one of the things that happens is over towards the weekend, Daniel will text me and say, hey, what's kind of the focus of the sermon so we can pray specifically about outcomes or things that you're asking the Lord to do in the midst of this. When he texted me this weekend... And ask me kind of what we could pray for. This is what I sent him. I said, pray for our church to exhibit and experience sacrificial unity through love and service on the foundation of the gospel. That's my prayer for us. That we will experience it and we will exhibit it. Because can I tell you what the world out there is looking for? It's a place to belong. A place to be. And they're not going to be part of a place that's squibbling all the time about things that don't really matter. But they are longing for a place where people love them and encourage them and cherish their relationship and serve them. And my prayer for our church is that we will experience and exhibit sacrificial unity through love and service on the foundation of the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that's our goal, that's our desire, is to live for you. And we know the world is searching for it, the world needs it, because they need you. And that of all the places they can find it, that the only answer to the loneliness epidemic is a gospel-centered community of believers. And so Lord, I pray first of all for us that we would recognize in our own life the areas of our lives that we have had pride in and try to take ownership of when they're yours. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to understand how we can serve one another in love, how we can fade into the background and serve one another. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us not seek the the big monument, but just a simple life that glorifies you and extends your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that we experience and exhibit sacrificial unity through love and service 
on the foundation of the gospel. For the sake of your name and the spread of your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.